All right. Uh, so we are here to discuss uh, chapter two, concepts and terms uh, from Brain of the Firm. Uh, and this is our second session of the Brain of the Firm reading group. Uh, so chapter two, um, as described in the front of the book, uh, it says, uh, <clears throat> um, if chapter two is read carefully and the reader doggedly refuses to be put off, he will be armed with the first set of tools he needs. There's a special glossary of cybernetic terms at the back of the book so that people can refresh their understanding if necessary. Uh, you may well find that these strange terms soon become old friends. They deserve to be, or I should not have bothered to introduce them. So we are getting our concepts and terms here, uh, especially with a focus on the concept of feedback. Uh, but yeah, uh, what did people have to say about this chapter? Uh, put your hand up if you have something to say. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's very interesting that like I mean. The first chapter sets up the problem, um, and it's, I mean, we're, we're all familiar with it, right? It's the problem of um, complexity, accelerating complexity, um, regulation, and so on. But it's, it's chapter two really gets to get into the absolute sort of bedrock foundational sort of stuff. Um, it opens with this guy, like, it, it, it's, my, my copy here is so densely annotated because it's just so much being kind of delivered in the salvo of a couple of pages. And then the back half of the um, the chapter kind of, I mean, it goes into the feedback stuff, but the, 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 these first couple of pages are really interesting, right? That like, he's, he's saying, we're gonna, we shall discuss the nature of systems and their control in a new language, okay? Um, the first principle of control is that the controller is part of the system under control. The controller is not something stuck onto the system by a higher authority, which then accords it managerial prerogatives, okay? So straight up mind-blowing stuff uh, right out the gate. Um, the controller, moreover, grows with the system. And if we look back through time, we see that the controller evolved with the system too. For these reasons, it is best to ask how a system under control is aware of itself and its own states, rather than to ask how a controller can become aware of the state of the system. So, imminence. The, the control is imminently embedded in the system. It is not an external thing. Um, maybe a great, really good sort of visual uh, for this is the... Um, the centrifugal governor on a steam engine, the little spinny guy with the, the little uh, steel balls or whatever. And, uh, you know, like if you look at the steam engine, you might think, oh, well, the, the governor sits on top of the, the big bulk of the engine. So it, it must be some sort of like king, you know, that rules the engine or something like that. But then if you just look at the wiring diagram of how all those components are connected to each other, it's clear that the governor is inside of the engine, like realistically, um, that it is inside the flow of causes of the engine. Um, which points again to Beer's thing of like trying to get us away from entity thinking, like just looking at entities in space. Like you would see the governor is above the engine and that, that just because of the way the semiotic kind of neural weirdness of our brain or our senses works, we kind of interpret that as having some kind of meaning, right? That like the entity is above the other entity in some kind of symbolic sense. But looking at the flow of causes, it's not above at all. It's completely embedded. Um, Beer wants us to shift our, our attention onto that embeddedness and away from thinking of like, oh, there's there's a little king on top of the the pile of stuff. Um, and also the fact that he's talking about awareness right out right up here, right? That like, it's really interesting, right? Because I think in the first chapter we got this glimpse of a kind of like uh, vi vitalist machinic ontology of some kind, right? Like where 
in kind of intelligence is distributed throughout the universe as a kind of natural force. It's a, it's a natural force in the world for things to be kind of aware in some sense of themselves. Um, he then goes on to say that like, it's, it's not consciousness we're talking about there. It's not like we shouldn't really draw too many analogies with our representational symbolic thinking, but that just self-analysis or self-reflection, like reflexivity is a natural consequence of just feedback loops. It's, it's, it's a thing that occurs in the world. Um, so that a, you know, the, the governor on top of the steam engine can be aware in some sense of the, the, uh, the, the state of the entire system uh, or the states that are relevant to the system. Right. Yeah. I mean, I read this stuff and all I think about is Hegel, 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 Hegel. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Hegel's ontology and the ontological reversal of Kant that Hegel does. Um, this reminds me a lot of that. Uh, so um, let's go to Jake. Uh, yeah, on the subject of control within a system, like when I was reading this passage, I was trying to think, I was trying to move my brain from things standing above, I was thinking of it in puppet wires terms, like um, the thing is puppeting above the system, but then thinking about the puppeteer within the system, but then that's not going far enough itself, right? But like each thing within the system has their own wire, like the um, diagram in the uh, uh, Designing Freedom book, everyone's pulling a string. Um, and then there's also things maybe that aren't even animate that have their own strings to pull as well, like like socially necessary labor time within capitalism maybe, although maybe that maybe that's not included in part of controller, maybe that's more of like an emergent thing. Um, so yeah, I, I went from trying to think of this thing, just moving the puppeteers within the system to like spreading these strings out through all within the system where the controller is maybe not even just um, like one person or like even a group of people even really. Right. So we've, uh, Shane has mentioned how uh, beer is encouraging us to get away from entity thinking. And it will be interesting to see how he represents emergent phenomena uh, in his control approach, um, given that they are not necessarily clearly entities. Um, uh, uh, Brett, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, so um, I have a sort of a bit of a confusion, a bit of a question. Um, something I'm not very clear on still is like what counts as, he, he asked this question directly, what does decount as a response to stimulus? And I'm sort of wondering though, like if you sort of start adjudicating this, um, doesn't everything just respond to a stimulus or maybe is there things that maybe don't? I guess I'm a little confused there and still. <laughs> I think I can kind of maybe offer part of a sort of answer to that. Um, it's, I think it's a little bit more clear in the heart of the enterprise when he's talking about like identifying systems that I think Beer's way of thinking about this stuff is that the, whatever is real in itself, like whatever this, whatever reality really is, is a kind of rhizomatic tangle of just disgustingly complex processes. And when we look at them, it's our kind of like judgment of coherence, like that identifying systems. So when we talk about systems, they kind of like we're, we're talking about a symbolic kind of thing, but it doesn't it really exist in itself or the way it exists in itself is something incomprehensibly alien to us. But I think he kind of gets to this with the stimulus response things that it's, it's when we, when there appears to be coherence between apparent stimulus and apparent response, that's when we think of it as being a system. And 
the possibility is always left out there that like because the thing is unknowably complex we could in fact be mistaken right like that he says with the cat right like you show a cat that a, a board that has just has fuck off printed on it and the cat might in fact leave the room but that's probably a coincidence but it's within the realm of possibility that the cat can read but we'll never really know until we do further experimentation so it's i guess it's it's along that kind of kantian angle right that like whatever is out there is itself and we we have to just apprehend it through the kind of structures of um coherence and coincidence that we we use to apprehend things um which is fine because we identify things experimentally and we look at them and go oh yeah that, every time i poke it it screams okay that's that's probably a response right um but you always have to kind of keep in mind there's always the possibility that you might have got it wrong it, it could be it could be screaming for its own reason you know and maybe the poke had nothing to do with it um yeah, I think that's one of the things I like about cybernetics is that it is it so it does actually seem every system at some point as something that responds to like stimulus, and if it doesn't respond, it's not there. But really, um, but mm -hmm. I'm sort of like he sort of he doesn't he's a, he goes on back and forth in terms of whether like that can be like universal to everything or if it's just like the things mm. we see in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there certainly is something real that is connected, right? There is there is there is a connection. A a network of causes and a network of like flows of energy and stuff, which is definitely doing things. Uh, but we don't have direct access to that network of things. We can't just examine it. We just have to kind of rely on our judgment of even even what we identify as stimulus and response. Like we tend to identify discrete events, and we we tend to have a pretty hard time identifying continual flows. Um, that's actually kind of what Beer is trying to teach us: is how to identify, like how, how to look at continuous things rather than like discrete pops and bangs as uh, as stimulus response events um but yeah i think he's, he's kind of paving the way to get there yeah um yeah and i i think we could probably of this in the terms that beer lays out when he says the first principle of controls of the controller is part of the system under control um which is to say the identification of stimulus would be a part of the uh, awareness of the system under consideration when you are considering the observer and the observed, right? So um, again, it's that Hegelian term of saying, Oh no, it's not that it's not that the thing in itself is a plenitude that exists beyond under beyond the observer's understanding and uh is inaccessible to us but somehow inherent to things. It's that the lack of clarity or perfect information or perfect understanding which you know Kant uh, imputes to like universal consciousness and God uh, is in itself limited, right? The system, the the system's inability to identify a stimulus it refers to a kind of lack in the system itself. Um, if if the controller is a part of the system, right? So mm -hmm. th th I think that's maybe some direction that we could think about going forward. Where you think about that, the the view the the observer is implicated in the system. What are the implications of that? What does that mean? Um, yeah, there's there's at least two levels of kind of um, observing. I think we need need to take apart there. There's the 
there's the sensitivity of the controller to the states of the rest of the system in which it's embedded. And then there's our, like if, if we are observers trying to work out what, what control is possible in the system, there's us observing that, right? So that might be, that's probably worth disambiguating. Um, yeah, I just but, mean in, in the sense that uh, when we talk about empirical observation, mm -hmm. we are talking about a system we are implicated in. Yes, yes, exactly right. Um, because of course, like when we when we engage with the system to try and observe it, to learn something about it, we are ourselves kind of engaged with it. So there's, it's, it's engagement all the way down, right? It's, it's turtles all the way down. I do think it's very interesting that Beer is like, he seems to be saying that like control is possible to the extent that the, contr the controller is sensitive and the kinds of sensitivity that it has, um, which is very, very interesting, right? That like, I mean, you, you'd be able to grade different sort of controllers. You'd be able to like, um, you know, alter these things by making a controller more sensitive or by, um, by kind of adapting it in those kinds of ways, right? Um, the, yeah, just, I just found that the, the, the sensitivity thing was very, very interesting there. And I guess, I'm not sure why it jumped out at me from this text particularly, but like, you know, we, we as human beings are, are sensitive to certain things, right? Like, um, but we are not sensitive to carcinogens, right? Like there can be mm -hmm. a all around you and you won't sense it. But if human brains all gang together and invent science, they can become sensitive to car carcinogens, like in, in aggregate, right? But like, yeah, you you can have a kind of like meta control or meta sensitivity um, that emerges out of the combination of sensitive um, systems that has a power of sensing much greater than the combination than the it's like it's greater than some of its parts, right? Like the ability for science to detect carcin to detect carcinogenic materials and to detect cancers is vastly higher than the capacity of just adding up all the brains involved. It's it's a it's a it's a change in kind, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. so I think that's worth bearing in mind for like beers, kind of like stacked layers of meta systems and how, how they're, they're like meta control and meta control and meta control can actually, it's, you know, you might think because like, because, uh, because the systems are all kind of imminent to themselves that like adding, adding layers of control on top of them might be kind of like diminishing returns, whatever. But there is this sense in which, like, because the meta systems of control can be more sensitive, like radically more sensitive, they can actually be vastly more effective. And so, you know, living in a society that has science, you're more effective at a, avoiding, uh, you know, cancer-causing substances than you would be as an individual. Well, uh, yeah, the, and, the and that gets to the whole idea of, of, like, dealing with Ashby's law, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly um, right. Uh, I do want to get to the people who have been waiting to speak. So, uh, Steve, let's uh, go to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was actually thinking uh, along similar lines as, as what Shane was just saying, where, or where he ended up on, which was like, I'm a little, I was a little concerned reading this when we emphasize stimulus so much that we're just sort of pushing the problem, right? Because the whole feedback loop really only works when you're comparing that stimulus to some other referent. Right, and there isn't a lot of discussion about where that comes from. Um, and uh, while I was reading it, this sort of came more in, to mind when talking about like the, the feedback transfer functions and the transfer transfer functions, which you know, from like an engineering perspective, sure, like we understand how to design those to a, a certain degree, and and that's that sort of well understood mathematics. But like when moving that into sort of natural systems, it's sort of like, well, you know, sure, maybe some of them are, some systems can be adaptive and, and you can come up and figure those, those out. But like, in general, there's no reason to think that that will happen. 
right? Um, and that made me think of his, uh, you know, pond scum computer uh, experience, right? Which was just assuming that, oh, you know, we'll let it do its thing and naturally it will, it will self-regulate and get there. But like, yeah, it didn't because you need to make sure that there's some imperative to actually like close that loop and get to the stability. Um, and uh, I, you, I think I, I felt like I saw his blind faith that that could happen right at the end of the chapter when he talked about, you know, oh, as long as it's negative feedback, then we're going to get to ultra, ultra stability, which also isn't really true, right, um, in general. So, I mean, you know, I, I appreciated and certainly the emphasis on stimulus and, and embedding the systems into the world is, is um, you know, seems right. But it does seem like he's pushing the problem a little bit um, to focus on that em embeddedness and stimulus and stimulus, um, you know, just the stimulus when there's still a big sort of piece of the puzzle that's kind of missing. And I don't know, maybe he talks about it more in, in the rest of the book. But um, uh, so, um, yeah, I think we'll have to look more at what he presents later in the book there um, in terms of specifying what he means. Um, you know, it, it, in terms of the negative feedback thing, I think we can get there at the end of the chapter when we talk about the feedback example, because um, that, that probably bears some clarifying. Uh, Matt, please go ahead. Um, I, uh, I, I think Wiener like, um, defined it like just like a little bit differently in that he um, um, emphasized sort of goal-directed behavior. And if like a, a system or, you know, seems to actually, you know, be taking actions in, in, in some kind of way, and uh, I, th th I just th th thought that yeah, you know, that flip of emphasis was uh, was 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 interesting. Also, like um, with a uh, um, uh, uh, you know, just inability to see like what is an entity around you. I was thinking about how like uh, um, you know, different th different systems like respond to very different time scales. So like uh, uh, you know, like your immune system adapts, you know, in the but over the course of like days and weeks. You know, um, uh, you know, versus like, you know, your 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 hand, which will, you know, uh, go away from a hot stove uh, instantaneously, or like, uh, uh, you know, your, uh, you know, your chemical nervous system responds a lot more slowly than something electronic, and you know, an institution, you know, like responds at like, you know, a much bigger time scale. So like, it's it's not always obvious, like, you know, what around you is like an actual, you know, is like an entity, because like, especially if you're sort of optimized for a certain, uh, uh, you know, your consciousness is like. Yeah, you know, your working memory, you know, but like uh, you, you're not necessarily realizing what the systems around you were doing. Right. Uh, yeah, I think another good example of that we could point to is that um, the communication systems uh, between trees, uh, so the sort of um, intelligence of forests, um, that is so slow as to be generally imperceptible to us. Um, so you have to really observe quite closely and thoroughly to be aware of the system responses and how they're connected to each other. Um, Rudy, uh, you had a comment? Yeah, I think here we are kind of going around a problem that's quite common in control engineering. And I think uh, Beer had in the, in the beginning when he had his T, his T computer, U computer and P computer. And then there's the problem of what can you observe Based on your observations, what do you want to do? And then what can you act on to get there? And these are three different problems. And I feel like in this chapter and in his VSM model, they get a bit more confused. But he was definitely aware of them because he talked about the TUB computers and he was never really able to get this core. But uh, yeah, I feel like this 
sort of glances a bit over it and your basic controls, you also glance a bit over it, but definitely because I'm an aerospace engineer by training, the part of observability is a big problem in airplanes because you really can't observe your own speed in many ways, or you can't tell what's the speed of the wind. So then I feel like there is a bit missing here that is not totally clear or not made explicit enough. Right. Uh, that's a very good point. Um, okay. Uh, so shall we carry on a little bit here? Um, the next section, um, we could look at like page 28 where we get to ultrasound yeah. systems and it's because it does follow on from what Rudy was just saying about like the sensing decision and then acting. He starts to elaborate on that. Right. Right. That's a good point. Um, so we talk a little bit about uh, internal stability disturbances and then get to the concept of ultra-stable systems. Um, so uh, what do people have to say about the section on uh, ultra-stability? What page was that? Sorry. Uh, we really st kick off on page 28 with the diagram figure six. Uh, Jake, go mm -hmm. ahead. Uh, yeah, it's actually kind of related to something that um, Matt said in the Discord beforehand about um, reinforcement learning. Um, that this stuff kind of reminds me, reminded me of as well, especially um, like exactly what Matt quoted was um, to decide between A and B, the controller must compare the outcomes of making either choice against its criterion of stability. Uh, to do this, the simplest strategy is to do a little avoiding and a little reinforcing, testing out the results of its criterion, and then setting the switch. Um, and there's this thing in reinforcement learning about um, exploitation versus exploration, which is kind of reminiscent of this, but probably not exactly the same. Um, where if you exploit like some reward or overemphasize a punishment a little bit too much uh, without doing um, more exploration, like different kinds of actions, you may kind of not evolve like your system, not learn as much as you possibly could. But if you do too much exploration, your system is going to become so unstable. I'm going to be doing so much kind of searching around that it's not going to learn enough. It's not going to exploit what it knows. Um, and yeah, this whole bit after the, um, the sensorium and the repeller tract, the transducers and all of that, that reminded me of that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Brett, go ahead. I just find this whole section interesting because um, sort of for my day job, I, I do, I work in DevOps engineering and basically my job is to build these systems that don't fall over when they get like random data or when, when, <laughs> when things start, when they start getting, getting, uh, you know, pounded with whatever happens to the system and needs to continue running. Right. For sure. Um, so it's more complicated than an electrical circuit, but, uh, <laughs> dealing with the same principles, uh, Shane, go ahead. Uh, Shane, I think I think I lost, I think I lost audio for a moment there. Um, yeah, it's very interesting that like in the, the, the big new DevOps thing is Kubernetes, right? <laughs> Which is like directly from like Kubernetes cybernetics, right? Um, because it's, yeah, I mean, if you want to like auto scaling, right? Like, your your uh, website's getting the Reddit hug of death, or whatever, and like you just gotta spawn more containers until that stops happening, which is a pretty pretty classic kind of like sensing a problem, making some decision, which is probably just some lump of JavaScript or whatever, and then then doing something until the <laughs> until the problem goes away, until the sense of burning stops. You know, just like keep adding more servers. Um, I think there's something here on in this section that is worth kind of probably underlining that 
the objective here is, uh, so I mean, he, he outlines an ultra-stable system as a system that can do this, that can survive arbitrary and unforecast interference, is known to cyberneticians as an ultra-stable system. So in a way, the, the auto-scaling AWS stuff or whatever is kind of foreseen, right? Like it's, it, it is an expected behavior that you will, your servers will not be able to respond fast enough to enough stimulus, whatever, or, you know, uh, traffic. And so there is a transfer function, which is, you know, increment number of servers by one, and that just keeps happening, right? But that's all within the realm of the known and the planned. What we're kind of emphasizing here is stuff that is unforeseen. So, I mean, the, the, um, uh, the example he uses is that of a, uh, imagine a computer that would, you know, detect that there's a fire in the building and would get up and walk out. And that's, that's pretty clever. But what if instead of de detecting fire, it just detected in general that something is wrong and left the building? That's kind of more the registry is going for there. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's just something really to emphasize, right? That it's, it's kind of a, it's a meta level above just the, the level of responding to a, to a problem. It's like responding to a problem about problems. Um, is is what he's trying to steer is in the direction, right? The good old unknown unknowns. Um, <laughs> uh, Matt, you had your hand up. Yeah, um, uh, uh, like uh, th th that that section about like yeah, the, the computer that just you know uh, just knows something's going wrong and then just you know has like a bunch of like things it can do when 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 things go wrong. I felt personally made fun of that uh, by, by that because like just before then um, I didn't like teach myself uh, this language Rust. And like, I, I've never done low level stuff before. I'm a Python person. And so like in a lot of cases, you know, like a, it's just about like, you know, make, putting a little character or removing a character to make something like a, a reference or like, or, or whatever. And just like, you know, so, so I'll just see, you know, I, I was in that basically that feedback loop, you know, I'm, the compiler's yelling at me, like, you know, uh, uh, just, uh, all right, well, but without understanding anything, let's just change, just add some uh, uh, ampersands and we'll remove some ampersands and uh, let's see what happens. Like, like there's no knowledge about the situation. It's just you know then that's a response that gets me out of trouble often enough <laughs> <laughs> yes uh yeah absolutely Classic, like how many I pointers think. do you want how many how many borrows how many how many pointers to pointers do you want before the compiler is happy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've all been there uh uh steve go ahead um yeah i just wanted to sort of emphasize how much I sort of appreciated the um, the focus on sort of the a representational system here right like you know when we're taught feedback control theory like the question of representation doesn't it's kind of irrelevant right um, at least from the, the engineering perspective um, now when you get into you know higher level control systems so I work in robotics um, and like AI robotics. So like you know I use this stuff on a regular basis but you know once, once you start looking at using controllers in the context of like more abstract behavior, um, there's kind of the two sides of it, right? There's there's the more traditional GoFi representational uh, systems, and then there's the more control um, Rodney Brooks sort of Brattenburg machine uh, background, which obviously is much more related to this. Um, so it was just good to see like from the control perspective, really the framing of this where like it kicks off really saying, you know, the representation of what's happening on the outside is totally irrelevant. Um, and to be so emphatic about that, um, I think is, you know, it's really powerful in, in the sense of recognizing the scope and possibilities of what you can do when you focus on these embedded uh, feedback systems. 
and you know that's extrapolated through you know the the Brattenburg. If people are familiar with, with that stuff, the vehicles book, um, you know, it doesn't take very much to start really getting into um, you know actually interesting behavior in the world. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly this touches on the whole good old-fashioned AI thing and Dreyfus's critique of it. And uh, uh, you could even see some of the stuff about the, the Chinese room uh, being relevant to this, too. Um, uh, Jake, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I have actually more of a question than anything else about the not not caring about where the stimulus comes from, if that's what we were touching on there. Um, like there's this particular sentence where Beer says, throughout, please note, the system is unconcerned about what it is that may have been interfering with it. Um, does Beer there mean throughout this section or throughout the book or throughout cybernetics? Um, and if he does it mean it more yeah. broadly, then um, I'm a little confused because... Like if you had, like felt a burning sensation on your finger, you would want to know whether, like, presume you didn't see it, that whether that came from a flame or if you, something's horribly going wrong with your finger and it just produced a burning sensation. Um, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I think, I think what he's getting at, and I, I think it is. I'm not even sure if it's actually on that page or if it's on a previous page of the thing I'm thinking of. But um, he does say that the. The sensing and the, the sense of the stimulus is internal to the system. The cause is external. But, you know, in a sense, the system doesn't actually have access to the real, like whatever stands in the place of that real cause, right? Like uh, whatever that is. Um, the system only really, in, in this like imminent kind of feedback thing, it only really has the, the uh, signal of what it has and the signal is kind of internally generated because the sensor is internal to, to the to the system which um and i mean you might think with like oh yeah so if your if your hand is burning you know there's a there's a kind of like naive realism to the notion that like the flame is touching your hand and then you you just know about the flame directly but what's what's kind of really happening is like you ha you have a nervous sensation that is caused by something that is going wrong and we, we, we eventually learn to kind of connect these sensations to each other, but they're not like intrinsically connected to each other. It's a, it's a matter of habit. Um, I mean, like, I mean, if, if you've ever experienced like hallucinations or um, like, I don't know, it's something equivalent to phantom limb or whatever. It's fairly clear that like the, the internal control structures of the brain are capable of being stimulated by things that simply aren't there. Um, so this, this is kind of why it's so important for a system to be appropriately sensitive. Um, because if if it's if it's internal like if it's internal like bandwidth for sensitivity is too low, it won't be able to actually register the internally things that are happening externally. But if it's also too large, it, it'll maybe go into like crazed hallucination sort of space where it's actually responding to internal noise um, more so than more so than anything else. So the reason that the system is indifferent, or un unconcerned, or indifferent to what is interfering with it is because that's a kind of sort of transcendental problem. Now, in reality, of course, it's all meshed together, and like the system is involved with that external thing. But in terms of sensing, there's a kind of transcendent kind of problem there that like the, the structure of the sensing is what informs the the action to be taken not necessarily the structure of the thing that caused the sensing right sense? i don't know yeah i mean i think this gets back to what steve was talking about with good old-fashioned ai right because the good old-fashioned ai response would be okay 
we need a system that understands the ontology of fire and how the ontology of fire as a concept connects to the ontology of body and what the implications are when concept fire connects to concept body. And based on that, we can motivate an action because we have this sophisticated ontology that understands representationally the conceptual uh, linkages. Uh, but uh, uh, of course, uh, good old fashioned AI uh, ran into uh, endless problems of being slow, uh, being uh, just ineffective. Um, and the approach that Beer uh, is kind of advocating here ended up being the AI approach that won the day, uh, more or less. Um, uh, Steve, please go ahead. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the idea of like, I need to be able to perceptually recognize a fire um, as some sort of object in the world before I can recognize that I should move away from it is kind of silly when, you know, you feel the burning, just go away from it. But, and, you know, it's just worth, I think, mentioning too, like, we're speaking specifically with respect to um, stimuli here, but there's a dual of it too in terms of action, which is that, you know, that, that same sort of dichotomy of um, the re GoFi representation versus action um, with uh, affordances and, and theories of affordances, which is that, you know, if I, if I need to be able to recognize all types of chairs in order to actually be able to sit down on it and say, yeah, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a hard problem because, you know, chairs come in all sorts of forms. But if you're actually only concerned about sitting, then you can look for more fundamental things like, you know, flat surfaces that are parallel to the ground or something like that, because your, your primary goal is actually to behave in the world, um, which whether that's reacting to stimuli or actually taking action, you know, moving away from the, this representational sense, you don't need to understand fires or chairs in some sort of platonic sense. You need to be able to like see the stimuli and figure out what to do with that. Um, whether it's reflexively or, or just more, you know, more deliberatively, but, um, but in a way where you can avoid that whole representation and ontology issue because it's hard and, you know, we can right. solve, we can solve proofs and play chess with it, but hasn't really gotten us very far in terms of like behaving in the world more directly. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, to be fair to Jake, I think you were saying that you're you're talking pri primarily about the problem of identifying, uh, distinguishing one stimulus from another stimulus, um, as opposed to the how do I act in the first place problem. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, that's that's kind of the the substance of what what was going on there. Uh, Matt, please go ahead. Uh, yeah, lot lot of stories on, on, on like illusions and uh, uh, yeah, like how you know yeah your 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 body has like a communication system. Yeah, you know, that done a lot of psych research, including in a schizophrenia lab. So you know, uh, but I will limit myself to one anecdote that that, that, I, that I think is kind of multi layered. Um, there's a famous experiment where they're like there's this fly that the only way it knows it's eaten enough is uh, from a stretch receptor in its gut. And if you cut that nerve, then it will literally eat till it explodes. Um, uh, uh, and like, I feel like that, that, that also works as like, yeah, the, the rate of profit is like the only thing that our system really, you know, kind of gets. And so you know, the, 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 the only way that the coal factory as a system, as an intelligent, you know, emergent thing of its own, really knows that if it's producing enough coal is if, you know, that there's, a, there's enough profits for, for the shareholders. And so, you know, like that's, 
Yeah, I think that works. Right, definitely. Uh, that's a good good example. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, Jake uh, Jake's just been yeah saying that uh, there's the symbolic uh, systems combined uh, with these kind of uh, uh, ant works that we've been talking about um, as like a kind of second order approach to these problems. Um, and, and certainly we do that as well. Right. Like we, uh, you know, the, what was it? The, uh, uh, Carnap's, uh, what is it? Uh, the Aufbau, right. Uh, the Carnap's, uh, attempt to develop a, uh, a empirical system, uh, for understanding science and the world from first principles conceptually, uh, was kind of a mess and didn't end up working out. Uh, but it doesn't mean like, it, it's kind of overextending, um, one aspect of what we do in the world and trying to make that, uh, an explanatory framework for all of reality, which is kind of the mistake that, uh, philosophy has made for a very long time, uh, which, which Heidegger kind of, uh, rectified to some degree. Um, all right, uh, let's move on then. So we've talked about uh, uh, ultra stability. We've talked about um, stimulus here again, transduction, uh, the sensory input channel, the motor output channel. I think that should be pretty straightforward for everyone. Um, so maybe let's, uh, move on to talking about the, um, uh, anastomotic reticulum. Uh, <laughs> does anyone have anything to say about that? What a word. God damn. Um, no, th th this, this thing really jumped out at me is like, yeah, this, this is, this is deep learning now. Right. So that, that, that um, uh, but there's, there's a sp specifically the kind of emphasis on the kind of, uh, super complexity of the middle part, um, Especially when, like, I mean, there's bits here about like the neuron is a kind of example of this. There's input. There's some weird bullshit in the middle, and there's, there's this output signal. Um, but if the, the if a neuron itself, if any given neuron is like equivalent to an eighth order nonlinear differential equation, like pretty hardcore stuff. But then there's ten to the power of ten of them in the brain in a like our, in a completely like crazed entangled sort of structure. Then it's computationally irreducible to work out what the fuck is going on in there. So it's like, and, and that, can, that only gets worse when you add brains together, right? Like, so that, um, you know, he says like, it's, it, when, it, when a person or a manager or whatever, it, manager to use the term here because he's pitching this to managers, when a manager makes a decision, like it is, it's a, you know, it's a dif differential equation of a sort, right? Like it's, there's, a, there's an input and there's a decision and there's some, some action at the back of it. And um, good luck figuring out why that happened, you know? Uh, and then, oh, if a committee makes a decision, well, well fuck, you know, you're, you're, you're completely screwed, right? You, 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 it rapidly converges on needing a computer bigger than Jupiter to work out, like, um, just even one of these things. And then you have a whole society, these goddamn things that are just like doing this stuff continuously in real time. And it's, it's, it's absolutely irreducible. So, the, so the what, what you're saying, of, Shane, is that we cannot just do ad hominems about orange man and understand the state of politics in the world today. Well, I feel like our orange man's variety might've been pruned to such an extent that uh, maybe, maybe you can make sort of general statements about them, but um this this is this is explosive stuff right like kind of admitting the computational power of matter in itself and like the uh the amount of stuff that raw material can actually do 
And then you have smart material with brain stuff, neurons and so on. There are, there are intelligent configurations of matter which rapidly escape from your ability to represent them. Um, and I think later then he's like, uh, try, kind of trying to, like, in, in a given set, like, there, there is a differential equation in there somewhere, but trying to work it out using math is probably not going to work for you. Like, you're not going to get there with, with a chalkboard. So you're going to have to infer what the differential equation is by experimentation or give up on inferring it. You just accept that whatever that block of matter is doing is weird and intelligent and cool somehow, and you, you feed it pizza and Coke, and then out comes something that you care about at the other side. And you, just, you only restrict yourself to caring about the inputs and the outputs and just let the material do its bizarre stuff. Yeah. It's a very refreshing position. It's, 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 it's getting away from that Cartesianism and Platonism and all that kind of horrible shit. Right. Um, yes. And so, uh, oh, Nico, you had something to say. Uh, sorry, I forgot the whole Zoom controls here. Yeah, I was going to bring up the same conversation as earlier. And of course, now on the, um, the I guess, particular sensory black boxing here. Um, my background, I'm, I'm an engineer as well, but I'm also an ecologist. And um, one of the main things I've studied really is global change ecology and how species might respond to certain stimuluses that, you know, are driven by climate change factors across, you know, certain you know, nutrient gradients, climate gradients, latitudinal gradients, etc. And um, I forgot what I was going to say now. Um, shit, but yeah, the whole black box thing in that case, you know, it's very, very difficult when you try to understand how to help a system adapt. It makes sense. Um, but it's very, I think, important to take the kind of subjective view, understanding how organisms receive this sensory data, such a changing genealogy of like, you know, flowers, vegetation, and can adapt their, you know, e-migration for like, you know, Arctic birds. Um, we're seeing like a lot of shifts in like what organisms they uh, predate on, or otherwise, you know, you're naturally selected against. <laughs> That's about it I was going to say there. Just wanted to uh, put in a little ecological uh, metaphors. Yeah, thanks. Uh, no, that's a really good point, um, especially when, you know, unlike uh, in sort of uh, Ashby's robots, uh, we can't uh, tinker with uh, ecosystems so easily uh, to understand the black box. Um, all right, uh, Caleb, please go ahead. I was just going to say something real quick. I had a really very superficial introduction to Nahuatl philosophy, like Aztec philosophy. And uh, someone was saying that the main goal of the philosophy was this phrase that meant uh, how to keep your balance in a slippery world. They didn't pretend to like, uh, we want to figure out what's true. We just want to keep our balance in a world that seems very slippery. And I just thought it was like, it lacked the sort of hubris of like, we're going to figure everything out. We're going to nail it all down and then we're going to get, but they were not interested in figuring everything out. They were just interested in surviving. And, um, I like that and it seems relevant. That's all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that seems like a good philosophical principle <laughs> for sure. Um, absolutely. Um, all right. Okay. So we'll move on from the anastomotic reticulum, uh, to, the next section where um, the anastomotic reticulum, uh, I believe, is technically called the, is it now the servo mechanism that it becomes in the engineering parlance? 
Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, here we are talking about uh, transfer functions. Um, we get into some algebra. Uh, what did people have to say about this section? I can just start off by saying, um, you know, I am not the best at algebra. I had a pretty bad mathematics education <laughs> growing up. Uh, but this all made an intuitive sense to me because I've spent so much time with an analog synthesizer and an oscillator and you feed one thing into the next um, and you adjust the knobs and the mathematical uh, principles that Beer is describing here are very uh, tactile and intuitive uh, when you can when you can see the lines go up and down and and the sound change. Um, so that that was really my background to coming to this uh, section here. Yeah, I should say an oscilloscope too. That's always good to have. <laughs> um, all right, Jake, please go ahead. Uh, yeah, as far as I can tell, the main thing to take away from this part is probably that, like, we start with this dumb machine, which is small f, um, which doesn't kind of feed back on itself or do anything much more of anything. Um, and then we layer on top of it this feedback system, which kind of modifies the input into that system to produce the output that's wanted at the end. Um, so you're turning like a dumb machine that just kind of feeds in one end and spits out the other to something which has this kind of feedback process um, but I have to say um, coming out of it I didn't get in my head like a rigorous definition of feedback at all really um, and like at the beginning and like in page 32 he says um, it would not on the face of it be correct to describe a stimulus response arrangement as a feedback system the term is used so loosely in some quarters that almost anything which procures a reaction to itself is described as a feedback what the term means strictly is so fundamental to cybernetic thinking that its connotation should be unraveled with some care. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so maybe we should be careful about this and maybe I do need to get a better idea before we move on here about what that actually means. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's not make the mistake that, uh, you know, uh, undergrads make where they're like, Oh yeah, this is fundamental and I need to, I, I need to understand it. Great. I got it. Let's go. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> uh, okay. Shane and then Nico. Yeah. A couple of quick ones. Um, yeah, I guess like uh, maybe it's worth, worth remembering Beer's thing from the start that he's, he's going to try and build up a language uh, about how to talk about these things, but he's not that concerned with the language by the end. Like he's, he's trying to get the concept to embed itself in, in your, in your head more so than, um, I don't know, rigorously. He, he does, he does try to kind of like define these things, but I think it's, it's quite a nebulous, it's quite a diff, it's a difficult and nebulous sort of concept, even though it seems on the surface kind of, um, um, you know, not super difficult, but really grasping the, the intuition of what, what are the consequences of this is, is the hard part. Um, I also think it's very interesting here that he, uh, he introduces the notion that uh, the controller, like the feedback thing needs its own smarts in order to keep up with the complexity of what the thing is doing. So if the, if the, if the black box itself is doing something very complex and it's kind of hard to, hard to know what's coming next, the, the feedback thingamajig needs to have enough smarts to keep up with it to achieve the stability it wants. Um, I don't think he mentions Ashby in this chapter, but it's very much in that kind of Ashby's law of requisite variety, right? That like your controller needs enough variety to achieve the task. Um, and that's always relative. Um, 
And it also implies this kind of tower problem of like, well, what if you needed a controller of the controller? And what if you needed a controller of the controller of the controller? Would they not, would it not be irreducible? And the answer is, yeah, it kind of is. And so you have to be kind of smart about how you stack those things up because it is, it is a losing game to like just add more and more stacks of feedback circuits on top of each other. Cause each, each of them will necessarily lose resolution as they go up. Um, uh, I, I'm really bad at math, and I, but I think I kind of understand the algebra that's here. But um, I'm kind of interested to hear from the more mathy folks if this if this all checks out. Yeah, um, I mean the, the example that comes to mind in terms of the inadequacy of the feedback mechanism, just because it's really recent, is um, I have uh, an HDMI switch um, connecting three inputs uh, to the input on my TV. Um, and I configured the, um, my TV to accept what would be the normal inputs, uh, from what you would expect from HDMI sources, um, in terms of color information and stuff like that. And all the, uh, switch can do is forward. It, all it can do is transfer the information. It's, it's just trying to get the purest transfer possible. Uh, but I connected a Nintendo switch up to that, that switch. Uh, and the Nintendo has really wonky color information that it sends out. So what I would have to do is if I wanted to keep the switch on there, every single time I switch between devices, I would have to adjust the color again. So what I ended up doing is just pulling the switch out of there and putting it on a different port because I can dial in the, the, the settings for the switch, the Nintendo switch. Um, but I, I, you know, that's one and done, uh, and the reason why I had to do that is because the feedback mechanisms on the switcher, the HDMI switcher, are not intelligent enough to deal with those differences. They're just dumb. Uh, so that's what came to my mind when I was, I was thinking about this. Anyway, uh, Nico, uh, please go ahead. Uh, sure. Um, so I really enjoyed the uh, diagram, of course, on page 34, figure eight, but it really got me thinking more so about, you know, the whole like Lovelockian idea of Gaia. And there's been some, I guess, discussion by a lot of like, kind of like post-humanist, post-modernist philosophers, if you will, using cybernetic theory to understand Gaia, not as like the kind of, you know, living organism, but as this like, you know, you know feedback loop in, in essence. Um, but this question of self-consciousness versus like, you know, awareness, I think that really drove home for me uh, I guess, how to, how to perceive that, you know, where it's often mysticized as like this, like, you know, kind of like living organism that's actually, you know, it's, uh, understanding what's happening, responding, you know, it's more of these feedback loops that occur um, that are very, you know, arising out of these couple processes, but, you know, it's like tidal currents, uh, you know, methane in the uh, Arctic, if you will, what have you. But that uh, figure there, I think, was just really good. Uh, I've taken differential equations, so I understand that the equations in this, more or less, but I think this diagram itself really set it straight for me. Yeah, good old diagrams. Where would we be without them? <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, that's a very interesting point regarding the, the Gaia hypothesis and what we mean by awareness. Uh, bringing what you're saying here to that, that discussion, I think, is really valuable. Uh, Rudy, please go ahead. So I'm going to take this in another completely different direction. And I feel like one of the better ways to understand feedback is if you have a car and, uh, basically the dampers and, uh, not, I know this in Spanish, like when your car is goes through a portal and starts bouncing 
one and goes back to the correct position, this elastic shock thing. Absorbers. Shock absorbers. That kind of things are feedback because it's putting your car back in the correct place even when your car is moving over a very bumpy hill. So I feel like that's a way simpler picture than all these, you know, cables going around. So it's just something that pulls you back, right? It's kind of, you have a spring, the spring goes out of place, while the spring goes back to the same place it was beginning. And that is a very, very simple feedback mechanism. Yeah. Right. It, oh. It's regulation and smoothing, right? Like Because the, the, the feedback here is maybe the thing that's, it's, it's shifting the emphasis a bit away from the point, that the point is the regulation, that like, there is some there is something that is desired to be held relatively stable or like to be moved in a particular direction, such as you know the height that your car is off the ground, and you put something in place to just just ensure that that more or less always happens. I mean, if you drive off a cliff, it's going to get fucked anyway. But like, yeah, if you go over a little pothole, it should just kind of kind of smooth it out a little. Um, yeah, and the other part is there's two components to this. It's not just. Uh the springs but you also need a damper so it doesn't go too fast so you start changing a bit the response and that's kind of i feel the best way to picture the whole feedback stuff uh steve please go ahead yeah i mean i think um you know two things there like one is again this appearance of the referent signal like and where where that comes from and the fact that you're always trying to get back to that um but you know i guess clarifying maybe to jake's question you know because it is true that Beer says, like, hey, we need to be absolutely clear about why, like, things like stimulus response aren't feedback. And then he doesn't, he only really sort of goes through paragraphs to explain what the difference is. But, like, my takeaway from that sort of what he was trying to get at here is, like, really the core concept here is the difference, the, the fact that you are constantly doing this comparison between the nominal and the and some measurement that's fed back. Right, that you get this error signal, you know, this discrepancy, and the fact that you're getting an explicit discrepancy is is really what you want to um, pay attention to. And yeah, I mean, we there's physical ways that the world works physically, um, modeled by things like dampers and springs that are tools that we can use to to get the sort of responses and stability that we want out of it. Um, and then that stuff's very well understood from a mathematical and, and physical perspective. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's implicit in some of this. Um, this is certainly how you start, how it starts to get taught to people. My sort of bigger comment is just like the idea that he's using this to talk to managers just still kind of boggles my mind. <laughs> like people must have thought of this and going this route, um, which, you know, I can only imagine must be just so or in a way of framing things. Um, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, he says in the, oh, in the second edition, I've added the algebra so you can, you know, you can see my work. Uh, and, and so all, all the managers are going to get it now. He's like, this is schoolboy algebra. You should be able to do this. Like, come on. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think the, the, the core like sentence that I picked out of this text, I was looking for it, but I finally found it. Um, so, uh, he says on page 33, uh, in the middle of paragraph two, uh, whatever happens at any rate, it is possible to measure the continuous change in the output variable and to compare it with it, what it is supposed to be. Thus, a measurement is obtained which detects the system's deviation from some norm. It is this measurement 
which may itself have to undergo some modification, which is fed back to adjust the input so that the existing transfer function determines a corrected output. So I think that's what he's saying when he's like, this is the thing you got to get. I think that's it. That's the, that's the core of this, this concept. Um, so, you know, when we talk about feedback loops in a sort of common parlance, uh, like we might have on Skype or something where it's like, Oh yeah, the, you know, someone doesn't have their headphones in. So then the sound keeps getting fed back and it becomes noise. Um, that's not really what the concept is pointing at here. It would be the thing that adjusts so that error is corrected for would be the feedback mechanism. Uh, Shane, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean like um, intentionality and like telos and that kind of like Aristotelian kind of like, you know, um, goal, goal orientation, whatever, is kind of fundamental here, right? Like, because I mean, when a guitar amp feeds back, it's, it's not, there isn't a there isn't like anything that's trying to achieve anything. It's just fucking squealing noise, whatever, but that is feedback. Um, the important thing is the, the intentionality of like an, an error being corrected deliberately by a system and not, not, not even like deliberately by like a conscious mind that is like observing something and, and formulating a plan, but even like, uh, you know, in, inside a cell, right? Like it's got a, there's a certain embedded kind of, um, uh, continuous quasi teleological sort of thing going on there where there's, there's, there's variables that are, it needs to be held relatively stable and it just like intentionally kind of recorrects that again and again. Um, that's the, the, the real core stuff there. So beer isn't actually all that interested in systems that don't have this kind of, um, you know, self-referential error correcting kind of, kind of thing, right? Like, I mean, yeah. There's all, there's all like cybernetics can be used to describe anything in the world, basically. Like there's, or even the, the way, the way to understand the way things interact with each other. But like the, the waves crashing on a beach are kind of un, sort of uninteresting to beer because they don't have that kind of like solidity to their like uh, circular causation in, in their feedback loop. It's, it's when a feedback loop establishes a kind of like circle of cause um, that keeps the thing sustained uh, and like sustained kind of deliberately. That's, that's where his, his attention really picks up. Right. It gets back to all the autopoiesis uh, stuff we talked about on the show. Um, right. Uh, okay. So um, any final things that people would like to bring up with this chapter? Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah. The, the thing at the end, uh, I said it again, I'm not really great at math, but the, the, thing, at the, the thing at the very end about um, the way that feedback absolutely dominates the circuit is the kind of thing that I find very compelling, but that's where it sort of slipped out of my grasp in terms of a mathematical kind of thing. Um, I could kind of follow what he was doing with manipulating the equations, and it it smells right, but I'm kind of curious as to like how did other people react to this bit at the end? Um, yeah, I did go through this and like understand how that would work, um, and uh, I also. Like I've, I've seen this work on synthesizers. <laughs> like you, you, you do these things and yeah, you could, you could filter out the noise. Uh, but uh, Rudy, please go ahead. Yeah, again, going back to the car example, like I feel like it's one of the more mundane ones. The moment you put springs in your car, your car doesn't fly, right? It bounces around whenever you find a pothole. So if you think about it this way, what the car does when it finds a pothole is completely defined by the spring nowadays. It's not defined by how the car looks like or whatever. 
So that's been her way of understanding this. Okay, that makes sense. So is, is the I, I kind of detected that a point Beer is trying to get at is that these feedback mechanisms are much more effective than you'd initially expect them to be. And yeah, the behavior of the overall system is more defined by the feedback mechanism than it is by the rest of the, the sort of apparatus. Yeah, that's, I think, the most important point. Like I say, like, if you go a portal, what you feel is the springs, even doesn't matter the details of your car. So the springs are in charge of the interaction, yeah. really. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, that does make intuitive sense. Cool. Um, yeah, this is maybe tangential, but the thing I was thinking about here is that um, uh, if you look at like the, the sound system of a um, uh, original Nintendo or Famicom, uh, the initial signal that is sent into that system is just a click producer. All it does is it, it produces clicking sounds. Uh, and it's the whole feedback system that actually produces like recognizable notes and music out of that. But the, the input is nothing sophisticated at all. It's just click on and off. That's it. Um, so this, the feedback system is absolutely predominant over the signal. Um, it's completely unrecognizable from what you put into the system. Um, Steve and then Mark. Um, yeah, just to add to that a little bit, like um, it turns out, you know, the way that I sort of internalize this is like, it turns out that like, as long, it's pretty easy to get, to keep the system from getting more unstable through like positive feedback, but it's, pretty straightforward to like get things sort of negative to get into the negative feedback. But the, the problem you run into is that like, can you design your feedback transfer function in such a way that it responds in a fast enough or meaningful enough way? Cause you know, if your spring is like very unspring like, then it's not really going to do enough. And it, the, the dynamics of it, like it doesn't really work out and it won't really like bring you very quickly or very effectively to, back to your your nominal position and so like there is questions about the dynamics of it and how how effectively you can quickly get back um without uh you know going through wild tangents in the in the meantime but it but just the idea that you have some negative feedback regulating system in here um it, it's like it's kind of hard not to help <laughs> It, it's just can it help, can you get it to the point where it helps enough that you get nice ultra stable behavior on, on the outside of it? Um, so I think like the point really that he's trying to make is maybe a little bit less on the sort of holistic statement that you know hey it's very easy to get ultra stable systems. It's that like negative feedback is like extremely powerful that um, and not complicated in in some sense. Like it's pretty simple math and you can get some something in there that helps regulate your system. And, you know, you might have to do a little bit of work to regulate it the best way, but just the concept of negative feedback makes it possible very directly. Right. Uh, Mark, please go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just just following up on that and your synthesizer talk is, because it's my understanding that, uh, like, ne the whole negative feedback concept comes from Nyquist's work at Bell Labs. And so it's... It's yeah. It's so the so the, there's the one the problem of going something actually going into oscillation, right? So then the negative feedback can use that, but then as you get finer grained, that you're actually killing the or you know you're reducing the harmonic distortion or whatever. So it's like there's the 
uh, like Steve was saying, there's the major effects and then you can kind of keep tuning it down. So uh, that, that's all I wanted to throw in. Right. And, you know, that sort of fine tuning is what gives you like a piano sound out of your synthesizer instead of like a drum. Uh, you know, the system's going to make recognizable sound one way or the other, but you do have to be concerned about what you're going to actually get out. Um, and so that gets back to what Shane was talking about intentionality. Um, Jake, please go ahead. Yeah, this isn't even necessarily a serious point, but <laughs> when I was thinking about the little F and the big F, I was thinking of uh, the little F as um, like this is as, like a social system and the little F is like people making a bit too much noise, being a bit too loud. And the big F is the the big bureaucracy or the, you know, the the management trying to dampen the noise and they can get arbitrarily authoritarian and this big F can get as big as it likes and dominate the system to stop these noisy, loud little Fs. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's a serious point or not, but it was amusing me enough that I thought I wanted to share it. Well, I, I think when we talk about like the um, stability of capitalism, this is obviously a relevant concept, right? Like when when Deleuze or like, you know, these sort of post 68 thinkers try to think about why capitalism is so stable, they are kind of getting at these negative feedback mechanisms, right? Um, when they try to identify what makes it so adaptive. That, that's very interesting, right? Because I mean, um, I mean, what, part of what you're saying here is that like, even relatively unsophisticated feedback mechanisms can be extremely effective. Um, but it doesn't, I think there's the, in, you know, political theory and stuff, there's also this kind of tendency to, um, you know, oh, well, if, if capitalism or the state or whatever abstraction you want to name, if it, if it seems to be, you know, effective, then it must be all powerful. It must be like a God, basically a completely inescapable, you know, um, hyper intelligence that could never be outsmarted. And I think it's, it, this kind of brings it back down to earth. And it's actually, no, like kind of dumb feedback me mechanisms are weirdly effective. Um, like it kind of does turn out that like, if you just have, you know, a value signal and a market and, you know, some, uh, a currency or whatever, and you just glom those things together, it produces emergently a system which is very effective at doing its thing. But that doesn't mean it's not fragile either. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you couldn't just walk up to it with a hammer and, and crack it and just be like, I mean, like the, 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 the governor on the steam engine is an extremely effective uh, mechanism, but you could go up there with a hammer and just knock that fucking thing off. You know, it's like um, that's that's a possibility, right? Like, uh, whereas I don't know, maybe somebody embedded in the steam engine might think that the governor is some all all present deity that is like completely undefeatable. Um, so yeah, dumb right, feedback well, mechanisms can be very effective. Um, they can be remarkably effective. Yeah, and I I think it gets back to I think Beer was saying about like reacting to unforeseen disturbances. And that's the thing capitalism is really good at, uh, <laughs> which is why it makes it strategically difficult to get rid of it. Um, Grading stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, Matt, please go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, with with uh, um, the uh, uh, you know, uh, feedback like dominating the system. Yeah. What one thing that, you know, uh, uh, you can observe with capitalism is that you know, uh, labor discipline is actually prioritized like above like profitability in the narrow sense, which is like 
I think it's kind of like the same dynamics. You know, it's like, it's got this objective, but, you know, like, like this thing that it does in response to anything that's, that, you know, could conceivably threaten that objective, you know, like really, you know, winds up like a, um, looking at its behavior, like more, like more than anything else. Like, uh, you know, you can look at it, you know, obviously with the coup in Chile, you know, for, for instance, mm-hmm. or, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, or, um, you know, with all these people uh, d- uh, doing remote work, how so many of these managers, even when, you know, there are studies that show that, you know, these time, that time tracking and all that stuff really, you know, it, it's overhead, like it's a drag on productivity, you know, like they're still actually pr- uh, prioritizing, you know, like, like, uh, just, just, just the response to, you know, something potentially being out of control than, you know, like actual money. Mm-hmm. It's setting itself up to win, right? Um, like it's, it, the system of capitalism is in somewhere, some sense aware of the critical variables, right? Like it needs to keep class consciousness down. It needs to keep, keep profitability up and stuff. But those, those, those objectives can be traded off against each other. And the capitalists can set themselves up to win by temporarily ignoring profitability so as to keep labor discipline in place. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's something very important there that like it's the, the adaptive adaptivity and meta adaptivity and like ad- adapting, adapting like strategies to action and then strategies to choose strategies for action and then strategies to choose strategies to choose strategies for action. The, t- the bigger that tower is and the more fluid it is, the more effective the overall system can be, even with like relatively unsophisticated machinery. Yeah, I know you may have the whole field of management studies to try to refine that that feedback, right? That negative feedback, um, based on the basic intuition that uh, you give the workers an inch and they'll take a mile. Um, SK, please go ahead. Yeah, I guess. Sorry, to speak to the math, um, I think what I find interesting is that in studying AI. Um, the problem being solved by like reinforcement agents is to do away with how to analyze systems to, I mean, something that you've all spoken about, um, to like do the performative dance until you get to the result you need. Um, so I guess, yeah, I kind of, I kind of wonder what beer would say now, like now that, yeah, now that, uh, there's, there's advances in like understanding of how, you know, backpropagation works. Uh, so do you mean uh, in the sense that he might modify the example used in this chapter? Uh, or uh, Yeah, yeah to, to use essentially controls um, as like a target for, for management, for example, to, I, mean, I guess this, this, this seems to me still in the state of mind of like, let's, let's model the system as opposed to let's perform through the system and see where it leads us. Yeah, and that was a uh, distinction that Pickering brought up in the cybernetic brain, where he suggested that um, this kind of early cyberneticians that he uh, talked about um, were more in the representational mode, and then the later uh, cyberneticians he talked about were more in the performative mode. And I think that because Beer is drawing on Ashby here uh, to give you the fundamentals, there's there's a, quite a bit of that representational approach that is uh, influencing his presentation. Uh, okay, but I, I think your point is very well taken. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
So I think uh, with that, we might wrap up our discussion of chapter two. Uh, next week is chapter three. It's uh, kind of a merger of chapter one and two, I, from what I remember. Um, so uh, yeah, let's uh, dig back into more anastomotic reticula uh, ne for next week. <laughs> um, we and up, uh, thanks for showing up, everyone. I think it was so funny when we interviewed Pickering and he was like, oh, I never, I never figured out how to pronounce that word. <laughs> he was writing it for, for, <laughs> uh, that was very funny. I think my, my pronunciation is right, but maybe I'm not, not so right. Funny. I don't know. Who the fuck knows? Why? Who knows? <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, thanks for participating, everyone. Uh, it's been great. And uh, see you, you. Uh, same time, same day next week. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.